if you're a guest with us, you've joined us as we go through the letter to James, and we are in chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So James is the first uh, to author a letter that ended up in our Bible. The first part, the first thing written in the New Testament is this letter from James. And his purpose was to help the churches that were forming outside of Israel to know the proper behavior of the followers of Jesus. He's telling them uh, not because the behavior earns them any credit with God, but rather to help them see if their life's not changed, they're actually deceiving themselves. If their faith is real, then it's a evidence of a changed heart. He's telling us that if our faith does not result in actions that align with the heart of God, then we're just deceiving ourselves. In the first part of the chapter, James warned about our, our tendency to partiality, such as giving preference to the rich over the poor. And he tells us that when we do that, we're making distinctions that God doesn't make. And thank God he doesn't make distinctions, amen? That he is there for every one of us, regardless of our level of income or our ethnicity or intelligence, he loves us all just the same, praise God. But when we make distinction, we're making preferences, which means we're being not Christ-like. God looks on the heart, not the external things, not wealth or ethnicity. We become judges, James writes, we become judges with evil thoughts um, when we count some people more worthy than others. The poor are often the ones who are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, promised to those who love him. The rich, he says, are those who oppress them and take them to court. So last week, the passage that we read, the first seven verses, almost sounded like, oh, God doesn't like rich people. But so that we don't take that, that interpretation or that extreme uh, and ostracize the rich, he begins the next passage in the Greek, not, not here in ESV, but in the Greek with the word however. 
It's only used eight times in the New Testament, and the seven other times it's used, it's translated however. For some reason here, they didn't do that. But I think we could, since it's the majority of the time it's translated that way, we could see that as the proper way to begin this. So, the rich are the ones who oppress you. Why are you giving them favor and so forth? However, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. So James tells us the royal law of scripture is loving our neighbor as ourselves, whether they are rich or poor, whoever they are. He declares that if we're doing that, we're doing well. Equally loving the rich who are pressing them and the poor who seem to have nothing to contribute is fulfilling the royal law. It's royal because King Jesus <laughs> called it the second great command. The first four commands, some people include the fifth as well, um, deal with our relationship with God. And that's why Jesus said the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And the last six commandments are how we relate to our fellow human beings. And that's why Jesus said loving your neighbor as yourself is the second great command. What he was really doing is summarizing the Ten Commandments in two short commands. The commands are royal because Jesus said they're the greatest commands. And in fact, he said on these two commands depend the whole law and the prophets. That means though, it sums up the whole Old Testament. Love God with your all and your neighbor as yourself. But then we might ask like the lawyer in scripture asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Very lawyerly thing to do. Let's nitpick at the word, right? The parable says that he asked this question to justify himself. Why? I think it's because we all know we don't live up to that law. So like a good lawyer, he's looking for a loophole in that definition of the word neighbor. The parable tells us that whoever we meet who is in need is our neighbor. And to drive the point home, the good guy in the parable was a race that the Jews despised, the Samaritan. He was the one who did well acting as a neighbor should. While the priest and the Levite, who are supposed to be spiritual and, and godly and represent God, showed no love for the beaten man. They would surely have shown partiality toward the Samaritan, but they even showed it, but the Samaritan even showed it to the beaten Jew, who he normally would have despised and who Jews despised, Jesus knows how to stick it to us with conviction. And it is his love for us that points out our sin so that we can repent and change. Thank God for conviction. We don't like it sometimes because it tells us not to do something we're enjoying, but ultimately it's for our good. And here in this passage, his half-brother James is, by the Spirit's inspiration, doing the same thing to us, laying on some conviction. 
James is pointing to the royal law and saying that we're doing well if we keep it, knowing full well that most of the people who read this letter would think, uh, I'm in trouble because I don't love my neighbor as myself. That means I'm not doing well. He's getting around all the justifications that we would cause us to say, I don't show partiality. Really? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? How much do you care about yourself? How much attention do you give yourself? And is that how you love your neighbor? Do you even know your neighbor? Do you know if they have a need? When was the last time you helped them? And I don't mean that just the people next door, but even the person that you would tend to despise. Are you like the Good Samaritan, fulfilling the royal law? Another way to look at it is to ask, how much care and attention does God give us? Are you that way towards others? Of course, we can't invest ourselves like that in everyone all the time like God does with all of us. And that's why the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us that the way we express it is those we come across who are in need. Those who God brings across your path. Verse nine, but if you show partiality, you're committed sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Partiality is in the plural in the previous section. It happens to be singular here, but in the plural, it means James isn't limiting this just to the rich versus the poor. It applies to any reason you might prefer one individual over another. And now that we are convicted by the royal law, James tightens the screws by clarifying that our partiality is sin, and that puts us in the category of transgressors. Moyer describes the, the contrast presented here in verses 8 and 9. He writes, the opposite of the royal law, in verse 8, is partiality, verse 9. They're contrasted as doing well, on the one hand, and committing sin on the other. The essence of the royal law is that wherever there's a need, there's an obligation to extend the sort of love we lavish on ourselves. The essence of partiality is to select the, the recipients of our care on some ground other than that they are in need. End of quote. The message is not just for the church that gives preference to the rich or the poor for, for, or for any reason. It's for us as well. But James isn't done. He's going to tighten the screws a little more. Verses 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said don't commit ad adultery also said do not murder. If you don't commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Again, Moetier helps uh, with an illustration. I, I shared this with the, the Bible study class this morning, and it helps us visualize the concept. He writes that the law is not like a heap of stones. It's like a sheet of glass. We could take one stone off the heap 
and the, leave the heap still intact. But when we throw a brick at the window, it strikes only one place, but it fragments the whole. The law of God is like the glass. A break at one point can't be contained. The cracking and the crazing spreads over the entire area. Robert Johnston rightly said, the law is a transcript of divine character. The law is a transcript of divine character. That's why any violation is a violation of the whole character of God. Mariko and I used to, we had a business and we hired someone who we knew had a moral issue in their life that was contrary to scripture. But, you know, we wanted to give them a chance. We know we all have weaknesses and, and everybody deserves an opportunity. And we began to notice inconsistency with the cash drawer. And it was then that for the first time that it dawned on me this idea that if you are flagrantly breaking a moral law, it's easy to break any other moral law. In fact, it's likely. We'll compromise on other issues. Lovingly confronting the person with the clear evidence resulted in them threatening a lawsuit, which of course never transpired because we had the evidence. Now you might think that like the rich young ruler in one of Jesus' parables that you have kept all the commands since you were a child. You know, when Jesus, he said, good, good master, how, what do I do to be saved? How can I have eternal life? And uh, Jesus said, well, you, have you kept the commands? And he says, which ones? He's like, kind of like the lawyer, you know, I, I want to know the ones. And so Jesus told them the latter half, the ones about relating to each other, because he had a, actually had a problem with the earlier ones. And he says, you know, I've kept all of them since I was a child. In Matthew's version, Matthew adds the royal law. He, Jesus says the, the ones that love your neighbor, uh, or adultery, murder, and so forth, and then he adds the royal law, and he says, I've kept those. <laughs> Ooh. I don't know. Was he just fooling himself? When we break the moral law, we've broken them all. You know, at first he started out by asking, um, good master, and Jesus said, why do you call me good? And, and critics of the Bible say, see, Jesus said, Jesus was saying he's not God. No, no, no. Jesus was getting at the issue. The rich young ruler was trying to be good enough for God. And goodness was standing right in front of him. The one who could be good in his place was standing in front of him. Jesus was basically saying, do you recognize who I am and that I can be your goodness, that I can take your punishment upon myself? Because when he got down to the end of it, Jesus said that, okay, then go sell everything and follow me. 
because the rich young ruler had a problem with the first command, you shall have no other gods before me. In asking him to do that, he was asking him to forsake his God and follow goodness, <laughs> follow Jesus. When we worry about money to the point that we ignore the commands of God, such as the royal law, whether we're rich or we're poor, we're showing we have another God. Jesus said we can't serve God and money. One is going to prevail, and it's going to be the one that we place our trust in. James is writing to believers, but if you are hearing this and do not believe, realize that breaking one command means you've broken all and you'll stand before the judge, the judge who gave you this physical life and offers you salvation, and that should put the fear of God in you. And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because it's then we'll realize that we need a savior. It's then we realize that he loves us and took care of our, our biggest problem. Either we've never sinned, which is impossible, or we need a savior. And we all need a spiritual savior, amen? Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Speak and act. And in the Greek tense, it means keep on speaking and keep on acting. While we will not be judged for our sins because Jesus took them upon himself, our works are going to be tested by fire. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Some of our deeds will vanish like straw in a fire and other works will, like precious metal, come out more illustrious for the fire. For they were done at the prompting of the Holy Spirit and out of a heart of love. Those who are in Christ are no longer under the laws of the first covenant. We're under the law of liberty. And that means Jesus credits us with his life of perfectly living all of God's laws. Now, the moral laws are the same. We're not going to break those moral laws. They're the nature of God. And to, to act in a way that's contrary to God is, is uh, still, of course, sin. But even the judgment for those was paid for by Jesus on the cross. Remember that James is here, he's referring to the royal law of loving our neighbors as ourselves. The marvelous grace that is ours under the law of liberty moves us to want to act in ways that are pleasing to the Heavenly Father, who loved us so much that he sent a Savior to pay our sin debt. And in gratitude, out of love, we should speak and act as those who know our debt has been paid. Someone would say, well, uh, then we can just live like we want, right? I mean, if it's all taken care of, Jesus paid it all, well, we can do whatever we want. But love begets love. If you receive the grace and forgiveness that came from the love of the Father and the Son, how could you not want to live by what the Spirit puts in our hearts? How could you not want to speak and act as those who are judged under the law of liberty? 
James is suggesting that if there's no evidence of a life change, then there never was a heart change. He's encouraging the early church and all who read his letter to realize what our response to our salvation should be. Yes, we're still tempted by the world, by our flesh and by the devil to act like this fallen world. We're reminded of temporal pleasures that we experienced in the past. And how do we stay strong and speak and act as we should? Well, this quote from Thomas Chalmers, I think is very instructive. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. If you're habitually failing in an area of your life because temptation seems to be too strong, it's probably because you still believe the way to satisfaction is some old temporal pleasure. A lack of mercy means you haven't embraced God's mercy for you. You've yet to fall deeply in love with your Savior and find your soul's satisfaction in Him. How many of us know we need to love Jesus more? How many of us know we need to be more merciful? Thank you for being honest. You get it. You know you need more time in his word, more time in his presence in prayer. Experiencing his love will fill your heart with more love for him. Make a list of all the things he's done for you of all he's seen you through, and thank him for it all, for what he's promised yet to do, to finish the work he started in you, to give you an eternal body with eternal heavenly home. Make a list of the verses that speak to you of how great his love is for you, and meditate on them. In verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is loving one another but having mercy for them the way God has been merciful to you? If you refuse to be merciful, and don't ex then don't expect God to be merciful to you. The psalmist declare that God would show himself merciful to the one who shows mercy. After teaching the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. So be, before we withhold mercy from someone, we should ask ourselves if that's how we would like God to be toward us. If not, then how do we want God to respond to our behavior that often offends his righteousness? That's how we need to be towards those who offend us. It's usually not our righteousness that's offended, but our ego. Again, from Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. If we call him Lord, we need to obey his command. 
and be merciful like your heavenly father is a command. Do you have a right to hold a grudge? Does God hold a grudge over your past behavior? The Apostle Paul said that the more he loved, the less he was loved. So why did he keep on loving? <laughs> it's because the love of Christ had overtaken his heart. He shared God's mercy for the weak. We need to be so filled with God's passion for souls that we simply refuse to be offended and to persist in loving all people. All throughout my ministry, I've had individuals who tell me they don't want a fellowship with the church I'm ministering in because there are certain people there with which they've become crosswise. May we all get crosswise. The cross says it all, paid in full. And if Jesus is not holding their spiritual immaturity against them, who are we to do so? And who made us a judge over who should be in the body? Or as the Apostle Paul said, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thank you, Jesus. You should be shouting hallelujah. We're all guilty of not loving our neighbor and showing mercy, but mercy triumphed over judgment on the cross. It's not just for you or not just for those who came before you or others who will come to Christ. It is for today and tomorrow and every day from here on out. The Lord is able to make you stand. The Lord is able to make the one you're offended with stand. That's the word of the Lord. It's the message of the cross. That's why we want to let the Spirit help us be loving and merciful. We live in this paradox of the, the law of liberty. We can be loving and merciful, and yet it is a law to us, but it's so because God has changed our hearts to be more like his. This is that upside down way of God's kingdom. The world says, get even or get away. Hold a grudge and tell people how bad that person is. But God says, be merciful like your heavenly Father. Speak and act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. If you are in Christ, and you are, then you are to let his love and mercy flow through you. Mercy triumphs over judgment, can actually literally be translated boasting against judgment. Mercy boasts against judgment. You can know your works are going to survive the fire of judgment and that your sin debt was paid by your Savior. If you don't know the liberty from the ways of the world and you're tired of the negativity that fills your soul, come to Jesus. Know his forgiveness. Experience his love. Let him teach you how to forgive and be merciful. And for us who've been in Christ, let's go back to chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
deceiving yourselves. Yield to that power of Christ in us and be merciful as your Father in heaven has been merciful toward you. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song and then I'll give the benediction.